Austin. Hey, Ariel. So it's been about a year and a half since we first found out that we got the grant with PRX to start this podcast, right? Yep. So you remember all the teams that were part of our cohort with Project Catapult at PRX. Of course. And I'm sure you remember the team from Black and Appalachia. Yes, I certainly do. What wonderful people they were to meet and work with. (laughs) Indeed. So we've got a really great episode we're going to hear today. I know. We're so excited to share this podcast with our audience. And Keshi and Angela are the hosts of this podcast, and they explore so many facets of what it is to be Black in Appalachia. Absolutely. And it's organized around a broader initiative that's helping to document history of black people in Appalachia and really making a difference in their community. Now, I thought this show is really interesting because I think a lot of people around the U.S. probably have the idea that there's very few black people actually residing in Appalachia. Yeah, I think that would be a common misconception. One town in particular we're going to be hearing about is Corbin, Kentucky. I'm familiar with Corbin as a Kentuckian because it was the home of the very first Kentucky Fried Chicken and uh, the town where the colonel resided. (laughs) Right. And even though we knew about this part of Corbin's history, one thing that I personally didn't know was its history as a sundown town. I didn't know that either, but I am a little familiar with the idea of sundown towns because having grown up in western Kentucky, there are still some places that have kind of a bad reputation for being unwelcoming to black people. That being said, there is some sensitive content in this episode, as well as some explicit language. So if you're listening with younger listeners, you might want to take a break from us at the moment. We're really happy to get to introduce you to the hosts, Nkeshi and Angela. So without further ado, here's Black in Appalachia. I'm James Baines, and I'm Black in Appalachia. You know the old uh, Bob Dylan, somebody had a tune that said, you don't have to be a weatherman to know when it's raining. This is Nkeshi Elamine, sociologist of race and place in Black Appalachian experiences. This is Angela Dennis, literary activist and journalist specializing in race and socioeconomic issues. And you're listening to the Black and Appalachia Podcast. What's up, Angela? Hey, Nkeshi. So we're back again. Another yes, episode. We, we made it. We made it. <laughs> second episode. <laughs> second episode. What is the second episode about? Uh, so this episode we're going to be talking about Corbin, Kentucky. That was my drum roll, by the way. Uh, We're going to have to work on the drum roll, but <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about Corbin, Kentucky. We're talking about Sundown Towns. We're talking about KFC. What else? We're talking about KKK. Sundown Towns. Sundown Towns. So you remember that day when we were driving to London, Kentucky, and we drove through that town where the lines on the side of the street turned from white to red? Oh, yeah, that was funny. It was like the white margin lines on the road all of a sudden turned red. That was mad weird. Yeah, it was really weird. And we, uh, I remember like we were joking, like, what if, wouldn't it be cool if like black people were the only ones 
that could see those lines, like could, could see them turning red, like, like with some, some sort of get out shit. Yeah, like a sign, like be aware of where we are. Red lines, red lines. And what was even more weird about this situation was that. William knew exactly where we were. It's like these red lines. <laughs> like we were looking at these red lines and he was like, I bet y'all we in Corbin, right? <laughs> and we looking at him like, what? <laughs> right. And so to say that Corbin reminds you of Get Out is not an overstatement, you know. And for those of you who don't know, Get Out was this 2017 horror film by Jordan Peele where this black guy from New York City goes to Lily White ass suburb in, I don't know, blank upstate New York to meet his girlfriend's family. His white girlfriend. His yes. white girlfriend, yes. <laughs> he goes to New York to, to this to this suburb to meet um, the family of his white girlfriend and ends up in like this weird-ass, bizarre-ass, racist-ass shit where like he almost loses his life. Yeah, right? It sticks, basically. Exactly. But the movie's funny to me because it sort of like makes you cringe because as like a black person, you know, it's a horror film, but not like a regular horror film where you can say like, oh, that would never happen. It's sort of like you feel like this shit could really actually happen. Exactly. <laughs> and the place where it would happen is probably Corbin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Corbin is a small town near the border of Tennessee and Kentucky on the Kentucky side. And at the height of the coal mining era, it was a railroad junction for the Louisville-Nashville Railroad Company. It has a population of about 7,200 people. And like many Appalachian towns, it has a lot of natural beauty, right? So Corbin is the home of the Cumberland Falls State Park, which is referred to as the Niagara of the South. What, what is that? Yeah, I don't know. I've never, never heard of that before. <laughs> but also, Corbin is home of the Laurel Lake, and according to the city's tourism site, Corbin is the only place in the Western Hemisphere where you can see the moonbow. <laughs> and for, if you're like us and had no idea what... But wait, I know what a moonbow is, actually. What is it's a moonbow? Like, it's like, um, it's a rainbow produced by moonlight, but not sunlight. So, like, an actual, like, arch? It's and... at night, but it's... At night, like it's, a it's produced a night by rainbow. the moon. So, a moon okay. bow. So a moon bow is pretty cool, right? But Corbin's claim to fame, the thing that Corbin is most known for is, drum roll. You were supposed to do my drum roll. <laughs> All right. Corbin is the home of KFC. Like Kentucky Fried Chicken? I'm Colonel Harold Sanders, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about my Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yep, KFC. Kentucky wow. Fried Chicken, the KFC. Like, okay. the Colonel was, like, created in Corbin. So that is Corbin's claim to fame. There's a big-ass statue of the KFC guy, and there's, like, the first KFC there. You can go and get chicken, right? Mm. And they have this cool-ass drink called White Lightning. No, Sweet Lightning. No, that was William's made-up shit. It no, was... the drink was called Sweet Lightning. Was it? Yeah, William was White Lightning, and the drink was called Sweet Lightning. Are you sure? Yeah, positive. Okay. It's Moving like a Mountain on, Dew but, drink. Okay, but my next question is, are there any black people in Corbin? Well, I'm glad you asked, right? Because for me, when I learn of a new place, that is the first thing I want to know. Like, are there black people in this place? And so... I found out that in Corbin, the black population is 
0.05% of the total population. So that's not even technically a person. Well, I mean, I don't know what it is. I don't know what 0.05% of anything is, right? So, of course, you know, like, we're always throwing shade on Knoxville, talking about how, like, small the Black population here is. But Corbin makes Knoxville look like Atlanta. Yeah, that is, that's crazy. That's sad. It's, that's what it is. It's sad, right? So, of course, I wanted to know, like, exactly what is 0.05% of, of this population. And so I put in a calculator and I found out that there are 3.6 black persons in Corbin, right? So, literally, there are three and a half black people living in Corbin. Three and a half. <laughs> yeah, there's three and a half. Um, Where are the rest of the black people? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm wondering the same thing. I'm and like, why are the, why are 3.6 black people there yeah i don't know i if yeah i i wouldn't be a part of that 3.6 i'm not i'm not living in any place where the population is 3.6 <laughs> i mean 0. 0.5 percent black right? right so that brought me to discovering that corbin was what you would call a sundown town a what yeah it's a sundown town sundown town is a place where certain people are not allowed past a certain time right so generally this was targeted at people of color but really, it was a way to keep black people out of certain places, right? So sundown towns started popping up across the United States in the post-Reconstruction era around 1890 to about 1940. So at this time, we're seeing the Great Migration in full swing. Black people are moving from the south and moving from rural areas into the north, the west, you know, other places, black people are moving around the United States, right? right? So these towns are sort of popping up as a way to sort of limit the movement and relocation of black people into certain places. So you're saying people had to, like, leave the town by a certain time? Yeah, like, once the sun set, these people had to go, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know how common it was, but in some places, I know that there would be a siren or some sort of whistle that would go off at about 6 o'clock that pretty much lets people know, like, hey, it's time It's time to wrap it up. Like, wrap up your shopping, whatever you're doing, it's time for you to get out. Were people, you know, in town during the day, light hours to shop and work, and then I guess after they got off or done doing whatever business they had, they had to bounce? Yeah, yeah. So in, in, in places like Corbin, people could work in the town in the daytime and they can mm -hmm. go shopping, right? Maybe around holidays or something, people might go into town. So mm -hmm. you might live in London, Kentucky, but shop in Corbin. But around this time, when it starts to get dark, people knew to wrap up their shop, you know, start getting off of work, whatever. It's time for you to go. So like, how would people know before they got to town or let's say they were a newcomer that this was a sundown town? Yeah. So I think generally people knew about sundown towns through word of mouth from generation to generation. It was sort of something that, you know, your parents or your grandparents sort of warned you about, like, mm -hmm. don't go to certain places or don't be there past a certain time. But apart from that sort of oral tradition, there were signs, right? There were these signs um, in sundown towns that let people know, like, this is a sundown town, right? So there would be signs at, like, the main entrance to the town or in some strategic place that would say some version of, nigger, don't let the sun catch your ass or catch you in blank town. Like verbatim? Yeah, like, nigger, <laughs> don't let the sun go down on your 
you know, black ass in Tennessee. There was a Sundown Town where there's a there was a donkey, like <laughs> yeah, like this black donkey that was sort of like on this sign. Oh, like a black ass. Yeah, like don't let the sun set on your <laughs> black ass donkey. Here. <laughs> And people knew, like, you know, now they might tell you it meant something else, but people knew what that meant, right? So, yeah, I'm wondering if anyone has actually seen any of these signs. Are there any, you know, in any museums or preserved anywhere? That's a great question. I'm not sure if there are any that are preserved. I know that the Schomburg Center in New York had a discussion recently on sundown towns, but I don't know if they if they actually were able to locate a sign and, and have one. I think it'd be pretty cool to see one. But I do know that people have seen them in person, right? So like Dr. Bill Turner, for example, who is an expert in the field of Black Appalachian Studies, he's a sociologist who is actually one of the first persons to publish on the Black experience in Appalachia. And he remembers seeing the Corbin sign, right? So he grew up in Lynch, Kentucky, which is near Corbin, and told us a story about when he was growing up and saw the sign in Corbin. Hello? Hi, Dr. Turner. As you know, we are doing um, some research and some work on the, the Corbin expulsion and Corbin being a sundown town. Right. And we know that you grew up in Harlem, which is near Corbin. So we wanted to talk to you really about the sign. Do you remember uh, the signs that let people know when to get out of Corbin? We didn't have to see those signs that were there. You just knew about it because people told, they warned each other, they knew each other, they knew about Corbin, okay? So my mom was born about 45 miles from Corbin in 1924. And so, you know, she knew all about that place. Uh, we didn't ha- we didn't have to see the signs in Corbin, but uh, my personal experience, I was about 11 years old, which meant it was 1957. My father and I were going fishing and uh, there was no Interstate 75, you know, that highway that runs between Knoxville and say London, go right through Corbin there at, inter- at exit 39, I think that is. But anyway, at the time it was US Highway 25W that ran between, let's say, Cincinnati and Knoxville. It was 25W, just kind of wound through these little towns. And one such town, of course, that it wound through was Corbin. And Corbin, uh, as I said earlier, had this well-known reputation for being an unwelcoming place to black people. My dad and I were going fishing, and we stopped in one of these typical 19, mid-50s era service stations. And my father, you know, he knew what the deal was. There was a big sign up there that read something to the effect, if you're a nigger, run, get out of here. And if you can't read, get out of here anyway. Interesting. So were like these laws or was it just a set of rules that white people basically made up and was like, do this yeah, <laughs> or in, else? In some cases, these were actual ordinances, right? So like these were local government officials sort of putting these things on the books, right? So, for example, when I mentioned about the whistles, the case that I'm thinking about was one where the whistle was placed on top of a water tower in a town, right? Mm-hmm. And so these are the towers that say, welcome to such and such place, right? So th- so this is something that has to sort of be approved by the local officials. In other cases, they weren't as official. So they were more like informal laws, but they were maintained by violence or the threat of violence. 
So what happens if black people decided, you know, to break these rules or not abide by these ordinances? I honestly can't say that I know for sure, but... I do think that given a time period, given what we know about Jim Crow America, the rise of the KKK, that people weren't necessarily trying to find out. Right. Right. So people weren't trying to break these rules if possible, because, of course, you know, the repercussions for these things can be violence. Right. And funny enough, you know, coming back to William, knowing about Corbin, William actually told me a story about his great, 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 great grandfather, I think, who was actually beaten by the KKK for being in a sundown town. Past oh, a wow. Time. Yeah. Can you tell us about the story of your great, 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 great? Two greats. Great, oh. My great, great. <laughs> oh, just great, great? My great, great grandfather, Lilburn Chestnut. Lilburn. Tell us about Lilburn, Lilburn Chestnut, Chestnut and his sundown town story yeah so i came across lilburn's story when i had traced back lilburn to his slave owner in hawkins county tennessee this small town called saint Clair, and i'd found lilburn listed as property in a slave owner's will so lilburn was an enslaved person him and his mother were enslaved on the chestnut plantation in saint Clair, tennessee and so i'd found him listed as property which was really exciting at first. And then it was like, and then the reality of what that really meant hit. And it was like, oh, so then you get a little mad. And then you're like, well, you know, like he, Lilburn survived. Right, right. Because you're here. Yeah. And so I went through a whole range of emotions when I found that information. But one of the things I also found was that the house is still there. Get out. The house that. That Lilburn was enslaved in. Wow. It was still there may have helped build wow it's big brick mansion did you go see it i went and knocked on their door get out yeah and the the family still owns it okay (laughs) (laughs) okay so you didn't tell me that part that is wild tell me about that i said hey uh my great granddad used to be a slave here do y'all have any old photographs or any information about him or his family because we don't have anything and they kind of hemmed and hawed. They were kind of surprised and not really saying much. So these are white folks. These are white folks. And so I gave them a little bit. And then I, I, I called them and said, hey, you know, I want to come back. And they actually had stuff for me. Mm-hmm. They, in particular, in this, uh, no photographs, which is really what I wanted. They had this book, this kind of photocopied book that was called My Life and My Work by Reverend Pharaoh Lee Cobb. And this memoir was written in 1898. Wow. So this guy, Pharaoh Lee Cobb, in this probably 100-plus page manuscript, had one page about Lilburn Chestnut. Because apparently when Lilburn's slave owner died, the slave owner's will gave Lilburn to Pharaoh Lee Cobb's mother. I found in this manuscript a description about Lilburn and his mother's life. Just mm-hmm. maybe one page, mm-hmm. which was like invaluable for me. It's like, oh, like there's all this like information like I never knew. Right. And so the section in particular that stood out to me in regards to what we were talking about goes like this. Some humorous incidents appear in the record of Lilburn, though not too humorous to Lilburn. 
One involved the rule that no Negro could be out from home after sundown. When the Ku Klux found that he was in the habit of being in St. Clair after the limit, they decided to whip him one night. Lil got wind of their plan and started home in a hurry, but they followed him and got a few strokes with the switches before he got home. That is um, interesting, deep. I'm sure it was hard to read. Like That was the first thing that you came across right but what what's interesting to me is just like thinking about sundown towns even before this sort of time period that we see them sort of popping up all over america right like sundown towns have a history sort of before that to me it was sort of like a new idea that that we saw in this post reconstruction period where these towns that are becoming sundown towns are sort of like no blacks after the sunset but that had a history. So, like, that wasn't something new. Like, that idea of black people not being out and about beyond the, um, the setting of the sun, that is really interesting because he lived in that town. This was not a town that he was going to and coming back, right? But it was sort of like the sundown rule enforcing black folks even in places where they lived. That's crazy. And the interesting part for me in particular, because I grew up, dad telling me like corbin Irwin, like no we don't go over there right like, you leave them people alone don't go over there and right. so we didn't call them sunday towns we just said we just don't go over there right but st Clair in hawkins county was not one of those places mm-hmm. so hawkins county was generally free reign right so that was considered like an area that was like our home place like where our great great grandparents and stuff were from i was never warned about this area right when at this time during reconstruction was a sundown town or post reconstruction so it's interesting because that doesn't exist now how close is sinclair from morristown it's about 15 minutes east of morristown okay this time period that lilburn was traversing sinclair you're saying that that time period is a post reconstruction time period well it um, I could have my timeline wrong. It's certainly after the Civil War, after emancipation. So he is a free man at this time. So mm-hmm. he's not uh, an enslaved person at this time. Right. Because you think okay. the Ku Klux didn't Well, that's true. Come into of course, of course. Being until after the Civil that's War. That's right. So then it does kind of go hand in hand with the time period that we're thinking about sundown mm-hmm. towns popping up. But it's still a difference. It's in, early. It's still early. It's still early, but mm-hmm. it's also different. In a sense that, again, people were living in these towns. Like, it was a sundown town, but people actually lived there. Like, black Mm -hmm. folks lived there. So that makes me think about the couple of black people that lived in Corbin during the time period that it was a sundown town. Because we found out that about two people lived there, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least two people that we knew of. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know, did that law apply to them as well? Like, when Mm -hmm. the sun said, did they sort of have to start heading home? Or could they be out Right. Which is something I hadn't thought about until hearing this. Yeah. I would beg to wager that probably nobody stuck around of downtown course. Corbin. And and a lot of these things, you know, most of these racial atrocities and violence occurred not in the stereotypical out in the country, right. out in the boonies. These things occurred in town right. where there was like economic and political interest that people had to protect. And so these things didn't occur out in the boonies. They occurred downtown right right they occurred in the city when we think about the kkk i think at least for me and this is not to say that i'm not aware of like you know like violence against black people but it still seems a bit distant Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. you know but to think that like somebody in your lineage actually experienced a you know a beating Mm -hmm. on you know by the kkk like that's that's deep Mm -hmm. for me 
yeah it's um it puts things in perspective yeah Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. So after William and I had this conversation, this is sort of what got me interested in knowing more about sundown towns and, you know, you know, asking him about Corbin and things like that. And really, a lot of the research that I found came from Dr. Uh, James Lowen's Sundown Town. Right. So he wrote a book about sundown towns and he's probably probably the most well-known scholar on sundown towns. Yeah, I was uh, noticing that book the other day. I saw it on the desk over here and just was skimming through it. And some of the towns that I saw were actually, you know, familiar, like Cookville, Tennessee and Lenore City here locally, um, Forsyth in Georgia, even Anaheim, California and Bakersfield. Just several sundown towns have pretty much they were scattered kind of all over the United States. Yeah. And what Dr. Lowen said is that sundown towns, um, there were thousands of them. Right. So he's from Illinois and he found out that in his state there were over 500. Right. So these towns are all over the United States. And what's interesting is that a lot of them are not in your traditional south. There are tons of them in the Midwest and in the West and up north. Right. And a lot of places that you might not associate with black people. And I'm guessing that the reason for this is because the south has been a stronghold for African-Americans, the traditional south. Right. And so as people are moving throughout America during the Great Migration, I really think that these laws were just really sort of trying to stop them in their tracks. Right. And do you kind of feel that that might be why, you know, a town such as Corbin, Kentucky only has, you know, the 3.6 black people, you know, currently residing there as a result of, you know, its history? Yeah, I think it's definitely the reason why we only see 3.6 black people in Corbin. But I, like, how cool would it be if we found, you know, like one of those black people from Corbin? What if I did? Shut up. <laughs> now I'm dead ass serious. You what found, you if found, I did? You found the black people in Corbin. You okay. know, my Facebook stays lit. So I had decided to make a post the other day uh-huh. and I just asked everyone on my friends list. Does anyone know? anyone in Corbin, Kentucky. And I actually got some responses and they tagged this one girl in particular named Camilla. Get out. Yeah. Okay, so what does Camilla have to say about Corbin? Like, how did she end up there? I've lived in Corbin for about three and a half or four years. I grew up in Middlesboro, which is about 40 minutes okay. uh, south. So we were looking at the numbers as far as the black population in Corbin. And of course, it's pretty... Close to none. <laughs> yeah. What is your experience like there? Currently, I feel like the racial tension is, is non-existent. Of okay. course, you're going to find people everywhere mm-hmm. um, who still hold the, the you know that bigotry within them. Right. Um, but I feel like Corbin has worked really hard as a community to be accepting and okay. to kind of shy away from that history some. That's but cool. I also think it's important that we acknowledge that teaching the history of Corbin and how kind of how far it's come. Right. Now, my dad um, is a Middlesbrough native and his dad was a Middlesbrough native. So my grandfather grew up. He was uh, um, he hauled coal to various areas and it was just always known that he was not allowed to haul to Corbin. 
Was that your father who was African-American? My grandfather and my father. Okay, okay. So my grandfather had several coal routes in Middlesboro and, and more that way. However, when it came to Corbin, he was very adamant that like him and the kids, you know, my father would not haul this way, would not haul to Corbin. And even when my husband and I, um, you know, told my dad <laughs> three or four years ago, you know, dad, we're, we're going to move down to Corbin and buy a house. He was kind of hesitant. <laughs> right. He remembers a time when there were signs that basically said no black people allowed right. will be shot on sight. Yep. So I think those things are, were kind of hard for him to shake. But now that he's been here and he's visited us and he's spent more time here, um, he feels better about that. Okay. Uh, if you don't mind, what is the, do you know the names of your father, like their last names uh, and your grandfather? Yes. My grandfather uh, was very well known in, in the Middlesbrough and uh, Pineville area. He hauled coal. His name was Buddy Helms, H-E-L-M-S. Okay. And my father is still very known. I can't go anywhere without being like, oh, aren't you Kenneth's daughter? So he was Kenneth Helms. Helms. Okay. okay. And my maiden name is Helms as well. Okay. Interesting. Um, so you said it's just you and your husband that live there. Do you have any kids? It is. We currently do not have any kids, but it's interesting because we are foster parents. Okay. And we actually are looking to bring um, a foster son in, and he is biracial. Okay. So I'm very curious what his experience will be. Especially um, in the schools and stuff, you think? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Because I saw a, now, a story that was, I think, from 2017 or 2018 about... One of the high schools um, that was in the news, uh, the basketball team there. Yes. Some of them like wrote some racial slurs to the visiting team, which was mostly African-American or something like that. So, yeah, that will be um, definitely interesting to see how their experience is is in public schools. It's I mean, we have that here even in Knoxville. So I can imagine Corbin. Right. Well, our foster son that just left was um, he was he was white. And he was 15. Right. So he actually had experience at our local um, high school. And he he was always like, there just no, you know, he lived for a long time in Florida. So he was like, why are there no black people here? And I was like, that's just how it is. You know, I think he told me that in his school there were maybe two yeah. um, black guys. And he was like, I just think that's so weird, Mom, you know. But he, he's no longer with us. But I'm curious to see how it'll be to have a younger child who will grow up in the school system in this area. Right. Very curious. Well, hopefully it goes okay. Um, I hope so. We hope to get this little fella here pretty soon. So. Right. Well, thanks for taking the time. So I think Camilla's story is really interesting. In my opinion, she seems like she's doing pretty well in Corbin. Um, I do think that perhaps her experience might be a little easier being that, you know, she's the point six, she's biracial. So she could have a different experience than someone, you know, perhaps that look like yourself or, you know, my daughter. So she might be faring a little better than someone residing there who appears, you know, definitely African-American by appearance. But even with all that, I do think that she's still aware of the racial issues and she's definitely concerned about what it might be for her to have a black child. She wants to be a foster mom and she's thinking about having a black child. So she's definitely thinking about like what it's going to be like for her to have a chi- a black child living in Corbin. Yeah, right? she appeared like she was, con- you know, concerned. Right. So so for, for, to me, that tells me that there's still issues and at least things might seem OK for her as a lighter skinned black person that might be able to pass for a white. But for her black child, it might not be the same. Right. right yeah. and, and so, you know, just 
you know, as much as we learned about Corbin and it being a sundown town, I still have a ton of questions, right? So I want to know first, how did Corbin become a sundown town? And what, if there's anything, is there anything being done to sort of like really address that, that history? Okay, so we have come to the close of this episode. We've talked about a lot of things, a lot to unpack here. We definitely need to come back to Corbin again. Um, So we encourage you all to stick around to make sure that you get the rest of the Corbin story. But it's the end of this episode. Austin, that was an amazing episode and so informative about what sundown towns actually are. I love how much fun and Keshi and Angela have. You can check out more about the Black in Appalachia podcast at blackinappalachia.org. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can visit our website, middleofeverywherepod.org. Sign up for our newsletter while you're there. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Middle of Everywhere Pod and on Twitter at Rural Stories. Middle of Everywhere is a production of PRX and WKMS. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.